Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adaptive Leadership for Public Health, a podcast created to help you address the complex challenges of public health leadership by growing and thriving as an adaptive leader. This podcast is sponsored by the Region 4 Public Health Training Center at Emory University. My name is Brandy Walker, and I'm faculty at the J.W. Fanning Institute for Leadership Development, a unit of public service and outreach at the University of Georgia. I'll be your host as we explore various aspects of adaptive leadership through our podcast. Today's episode is about the importance of managing conflict in adaptive leadership. In this episode, I'll start with some conflict myth-busting, then I'll share some strategies for using various conflict styles, and we'll end with my favorite part, which is a little glimpse into how our brains work in conflict. I'll leave you with the SCARF model. Now that might not mean anything to you yet, but just wait. All will be revealed, and you'll see that you use that SCARF every day. So before we dig in, let me ask you to do a little word association. What are the first three words that come to your mind when I say conflict? Quick, don't think, just blurt out those words. Conflict. Now, if you're like most people, you thought of or shouted out words that probably don't make you feel warm and fuzzy. Maybe you even raised your shoulders a bit in a stress pose and had your pulse quicken. In general, most people see conflict as something that comes with negative words like angry, stress, tension, struggle, battle, anxiety, fight, confront, frustration, hurt. Maybe you thought of words with a little more hope like resolution, win, mediation. Or maybe words like management, differences, and unavoidable. I'd like to start us off by busting that myth that conflict is always bad. In fact, I'd like to suggest to you that our first step to managing conflict as adaptive leaders is to see conflict as a natural and essential part of life that can be the source of energy and creativity. Now, this isn't to say that we go out of our way to look for conflict, because conflict is part of life and we don't have to look for it. In fact, we don't have the choice of never experiencing it, but it's also at the heart of adaptive leadership practices. When you're faced with adaptive challenges, you have to consider multiple perspectives, new learning needs to happen, and behaviors and attitudes need to change. Often that change creates a sense of loss, which can trigger resistance in stakeholders, and all of that can create conflict. So just because we busted the myth that conflict is always bad, doesn't mean it's always good either. It's important that the adaptive leader can diagnose the type of conflict as one that has the potential to be good or bad. That good conflict is going to help produce new ideas and solve continuous problems. It will allow for creativity and give people opportunities to expand their skills, ultimately improving performance. Think about a challenging time when you've been faced with uncertainty and the need to pivot, to rethink the way things have been done, and to come up with new solutions. Any of that sounding familiar? Such challenges force us to learn new skills and it can be accompanied by a great deal of creativity and new approaches that emerge as good things. Of course, there is bad conflict, and if you pay close attention to your teams and see that the team energy or morale is getting dangerously low or productivity is being reduced, maybe the conflict is preventing job accomplishment and creating destructive behaviors. Ultimately, if the conflict is fostering poor performance, then you've got the bad conflict on your hands. Part of what it means to be an adaptive leader is to know how to recognize when conflict is getting into that unproductive zone and then to cook the conflict accordingly. 
Now, this metaphor of cooking the conflict is taken from adaptive leadership theory that treats conflict as something that we can manage and use to foster creativity and energy around the types of problems that may need to be solved in new ways. It isn't always one thing, but it's contextual and requires different approaches for different situations, like cooking different dishes. You don't want to overcook or undercook, so when things might be too hot in the conflict zone, you may want to turn down the heat. But there are times when you want to turn up the heat so the outcome is done and fits the circumstances. There are two major considerations for the adaptive leader when faced with conflict. The first one is foundational, and it is, have you created a safe enough space for people in your teams to deal with the high temperature conflicts without getting burned? And the second is recognizing when to adjust the conflict thermostat to get the best results. So what does that mean? Well, if you rush in to stop a conflict the moment you sense things heating up, you could be stifling a new creative solution to a problem that may need to get out into the open. Or you may be shutting off some energy to think differently and productively work through one of those continuous problems that keep occurring. On the flip side, if you see a conflict fire burning out of control and you don't step in with a cooler demeanor to slow things down, you may be looking at some destruction that is not productive. A good leader will be able to help their teams push through and embrace the energy and creativity from good conflict and pull back to regroup and refresh when the conflict is pushing the team into exhaustion. It's not always easy to diagnose where your teams are, so start by building trust strengthening relationships, and checking in often to watch for signs of overheating. And again, it is critical that you work to create that safe space where your team members and stakeholders can come to you with concerns. Now, let's talk about some common conflict styles. There's a lot of information about to come your way, so listen up and pause as needed. As you listen to these conflict styles, think about what your go-to style is and what style you're not as comfortable with or what style you avoid using altogether. The best way to approach conflict is to have a variety of options to choose from so you can fit your style with the circumstances. I'm going to share with you five common conflict styles that are based on the foundational research of Thomas and Kilman from back in the 1970s. These styles are forcing, also called directing or competing, which is when you get your way over everyone else. Then we have avoiding, where you walk away or don't engage. Then we have accommodating, which is when you let the other party win or have their way. Then collaborating, which is when everyone needs to win and get what they want. And then in the middle of it all is compromise, which is where everyone gets something, but also gives up something in order to resolve the conflict. If you think of a recent or common conflict in your work, you should be able to identify your response in one of those five categories. Now, as you think about why you would choose one over the other, consider two factors. How important is it that I'm right, and how important is the relationship to me in this conflict? The key is to be very strategic and intentional about choosing the right style to address the conflict situation that you face. Let's take the most aggressive of responses to look at first. That's the forcing or directing and competing style. If being right is more important than the relationship, then go for this style. Think of emergencies where quick and decisive action is needed. This is a great choice when an unpopular action needs implementing, like cost-cutting or enforcing unpopular rules or discipline. 
Think of this as the ripping the band-aid off style. If it's better to act quickly and decisively because it's the right thing to do, then do it. But this style can cause more harm than good if you use it in a situation where winning at all costs results in harm to the people or the organization. If the personal relationship is more important than the issue at stake, then using this style could strain the relationship, leading to resentment and even retaliation. Forcing could also be a bad conflict style to choose when it causes intimidation, which inhibits important communication, the discussion of alternative ideas, and attempts at problem solving. A leader who constantly uses this style to resolve conflict in teams is not creating an environment for creativity and energy to emerge from those team members. So be aware when you choose this style, is it an emergency that needs the right answer, or is it something that needs a little more finesse? Now let's take the least aggressive and also the least concerned with relationship style, and that is the avoiding style. This is a great approach to adopt when an issue is trivial or something else is really more deserving of your attention. Consider if you have no chance of winning, avoiding is a great option. Or if resolution is more important than confrontation. Avoiding is a really good choice when the issue is tangential or just symptomatic of other issues that you should be focusing on. And it's also a great choice when people need to cool down and regain perspective. In this case, you're not really avoiding forever, but just temporarily. So when this happens, it's important to let the other party know that you're planning on coming back to the issue so they don't interpret your avoidance as just abandoning. However, avoiding can be a really bad choice if your input is really needed and choosing to avoid actually contributes to the problem and prevents it from being resolved. Think about when you actually have the answer. Avoiding can make the conflict worse if you're perceived as not caring about the relationship. It's also a bad idea if you're using it as a passive-aggressive or an unproductive delaying tactic. If you're just sitting back knowing you have the solution, but you're purposely withholding it to show those people, then you're probably making it worse. So avoid when it's helping, but don't if it's not. Now our next style, accommodating, this is a style that's more concerned with the relationships involved than being right. So what would that look like? Many people have a negative view of this approach because it may seem weak to give in to other people, but it can be really powerful and effective in conflict management if used in the right way and for the right reasons. Choose this style if it's important to you that you satisfy others to maintain cooperation. This is effective when what you're giving isn't as important to you, but the cooperation and the relationship is. It's also a way to allow a better position to be heard, to learn, and to show your reasonableness. This can be a really big step for a leader to let go of that control and let someone else have the spotlight, and it can result in great gains for you and your teams. Using the accommodating conflict style is a great way of building social credits for later issues. So if something seems more important to the other person and not so much to you, giving in helps that person see you as an ally that later can benefit you when something's more important to you than them. However, accommodating can be a bad choice if the outcome just doesn't seem fair to you and it makes you feel or you start being perceived as a doormat. This can lead to feelings of resentment, inadequacy, and loss of respect for yourself and from others. 
If this happens, people may begin to take advantage of you. So if the accommodating style is building up social credits, that's great. But if it's building up resentment, then it's not so great. So you have to read the situation. Remember, the more you switch up your style so you're responding with the right style for the right situation, the less likely these negative situations will occur. And you can also move from one style to another if you find that you're not getting the desired result. Let's look at collaborating next. Now, the word collaboration is very popular these days. We all want to collaborate and be seen as collaborative, but it's not always the best conflict style to use. It depends on... what does it depend on? The situation. It is a great style to start out with when all voices need to be heard. For example, when it's important to find an integrative solution because concerns are too important to be compromised, or when you need to merge insights from people with different perspectives. Collaboration is a great style to use when you want to maintain commitment from all parties through consensus, and it's great to use if you need to work through feelings that have interfered with a relationship. That might sound like it applies to personal relationships only, but emotions can run high in professional team settings and especially in the community-engaged work that you all do in public health. So be sure that you consider the relationships that you build in the work that you do internally and externally. Now, collaboration takes a great deal of time, energy, and effort, so it's a very bad choice when you simply don't have a lot of time, energy, and effort. It can cause more harm than good if you find you're spending too much time on trivial matters or if you're diverting or wasting resources. Ultimately, if you find that there may not be a solution that provides satisfaction for all parties involved, you may need to switch to a different conflict style. Often people find that they turn to the middle-of-the-road option, which is compromise. Here, everyone wins something, but everyone also loses something that they want. It can be a great option when you need a backup for collaboration or competition when those are unsuccessful, or when the goals are important but they're not worth the effort of potential disruption that might come from more assertive modes. Compromise also works well if both parties are equally committed and won't budge when you're at a stalemate. And compromise works really well when it's more important to achieve a temporary settlement to complex issues or to arrive at timely solutions when you're under time pressure. But compromise can make the conflict worse if, by choosing compromise, you lose sight of long-term goals, if it leads to a lack of trust or the creation of a cynical environment, or if you're simply being viewed as having no firm values because you compromise so much, then compromise is not your friend. Be careful of the perception or of the reality that you're making concessions just to keep people happy without resolving the original conflict. So the takeaway with conflict styles is that you should have access to all of these styles and make strategic and intentional choices on how to respond or how to adjust your responses. Those choices should be based on two things, the importance of you being right and the importance of the relationships as well as the style that's going to best allow the best resolution for the situation. Now, let's turn to what happens when our brains face a conflict that produces a threat response. Facing a threat limits our ability to be rational, strategic, and intentional, which is what I've been telling you to do. This model I'm going to share with you, the SCARF model, is going to turn on a light bulb in your head, and you're going to start seeing SCARF everywhere. So get ready. 
This is based on the research of David Rock, so if you search Scarf and David Rock, you'll find the original articles that he's written on this model. His work starts from the premise that our brains are wired to minimize threat and maximize reward. We all know that when faced with physical threats, the logical parts of our brains shut down and our instincts and self-preservation take over with what are those responses? Fight, flight, or freeze. The SCARF model states that we have very similar responses to social and relational threats. In other words, when we're faced with situations that threaten us in social and relational ways, our rational brains that allow us to think through the problem facing us and make logical choices takes a back seat to the instinctual part of our brains, what we might call our lizard brain, which causes the fight, flee, or freeze response to kick in. Now the thing that I like most about this model is that it applies to all of us, that is, all of us with neurotypical or, quote, normal, unquote, brains. So it's actually the result of our brains working properly. But we can also use this model to help us make better choices to prevent unnecessary conflict, to understand conflict when it does occur, and to help explain our own actions when we're part of the conflict. Okay, now it's time to tell you what SCARF stands for. The letters stand for the five relational and social domains that when threatened can cause that lizard brain to take over. Conversely, when we reward these rational and social domains, our lizard brain calms down and lets our rational brain take over. So the S stands for status. Now status refers to your relative importance to others. This doesn't mean our positional status like the president or CEO, but our status as a valuable human being. We may feel insecure if we feel like we're seen as holding less status than someone else, and in such a situation we may feel threatened. But this also refers to a kind of illogical rage that can come from seemingly simple situations like maybe when someone cuts in front of you in line or on the roadway. Think about that expression, road rage. I'm not talking about any actual threat of violence in that situation, but think about this scenario. You're waiting on a parking space, and someone just zips right in and steals it from you. What's going on in your mind? Maybe you're thinking, hey, what are you doing? Who are you to think that this is your space when I've been waiting on it? Your lizard brain might take over and cause you to feel that rage that makes your adrenaline spike. The threat isn't one of safety or survival, it's to your status. You're thinking, who are you to think you're more important than me? So what examples come to mind when you have this kind of response? Now conversely, when we recognize others as having value and status, they're more likely to relax and have greater control of their lizard brain, which means they can think clearly without the fight, flight, or freeze response taking over. So think of ways that you can help people feel like valued human beings with status that helps them listen to you. Next, the C stands for certainty. The social and relational need for certainty refers to your ability to predict the future. Now this doesn't refer to any kind of mystical abilities, but our simple need to know what's coming next. The need to predict the future is as basic as knowing that when I wake up, I still have the same job I had when I went to bed. Knowing that when I go to the bank, the money I left there is available to me. Knowing that the day marked on my calendar for my children to go to school, the school will actually be open. During the early pandemic days, we suffered through an enormous amount of uncertainty, and that takes a toll on your social and relational needs. It becomes the only thing that you think about, and you can't think of other things. 
But even without the pandemic, we all require a certain ability to know what's coming next. And when we don't have it, our lizard brain takes over and we don't have clear access to our rational brain. Think of the fear that some children or adults have when they have an unexpected change in their schedule or routine, and that creates anxiety about what comes next. Conversely, when you provide people with a sense of certainty about what's coming next in a project or in their job, they feel more at ease and can be more productive. So pause for a second and think of examples of a lack of certainty that may have caused your lizard brain to take over. Next, we have the A in SCARF, which stands for autonomy. This is your sense of control over events. Again, this doesn't mean controlling the weather or having great power, but it does mean being treated like an adult who can do things on her own. Now think back to when that urge happened for you for the first time. When do children want to do things on their own? As teenagers, toddlers, as soon as they can talk, even sooner? It's the way our brains are wired to want to do things ourselves. I remember when my kids would say, I do it, I do it, I do it myself. We need to assert our autonomy. Think about the term micromanaging, which is when someone's hovering over you and managing every decision you make. That micromanaging word is never used in a positive context. So when we feel we have a sense of autonomy and that we're driving our own car, so to speak, or steering our own ship, we feel social and relational rewards. But when we don't, our lizard brain can come out again and keep us in that zone of threat. So think about this. If members of your team or even your community members don't feel like they're being treated like adults who can make their own choices, then they may shut down their logical brains and go to lizard town. You can help people by giving them enough autonomy to feel like grown adults, which gives them greater relational satisfaction, puts them more at ease, and ultimately allows them to be more productive. Think about examples where conflict occurred because you felt micromanaged and your autonomy was threatened. Next, we have the R in SCARF, which stands for relatedness. This is a sense of safety with others. Now, in this SCARF model, the degree to which people feel a sense of connectedness and similarity to those around them is directly related to whether or not they feel they're engaging in a safe or in a threatening social interaction. People feel greater trust or empathy with those that they consider, quote, in their group or with whom they share similarities. You're more likely to let those people get closer to you and have a greater distrust of others. It's just how we're wired. So think about the people you most trust. People you feel safe having in your home, people you would trust with your valuables, both material and emotional, like your feelings. Now imagine those people do something that you consider a betrayal of that trust. That tends to hurt more than if someone you didn't trust did the same thing. Why? Because you had a sense of relatedness to the one that you did trust. So you can scarf and have your lizard brain take over if you're dealing with an out-of-group member that you don't trust and you feel like they're invading your inner circle, or if you're dealing with a betrayal from someone within your group. On the flip side, you can increase a sense of safety by making connections that increase that safe feeling of relatedness with those on your team or on the communities that you work with. So pause and think about examples where relatedness was breached and your lizard brain took over. And finally, the F in SCARF is for fairness. This is a perception of equitable exchange between people. Now, fairness is a tricky term because we've all felt things were not fair before, 
but that's not always objective. Our perception of the fairness of any situation is not based on cold, rational thought processes, but instead emotions are integral to judging fairness, and those judgments emerge over time through social experiences with others. A sense of fairness may emerge from cultural situations, but even as children, the idea of fairness seems to be innate. Probably every one of us at some point in our childhood said, that's not fair. And I think we all probably heard the same response. So shout out for me what you were told as a child when you said, that's not fair. Did I just hear you all say, life's not fair. I think probably we've all heard that. And yet, we all still expect it to be fair. When that social and relational need for a sense of fairness is not met, our lizard brain can take over, and then it's not about reason. So think about when you last felt a heated sense of unfairness. What other feelings came up with that? How have you seen others respond? So SCARF is status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. Knowing what that is, what those specific social and relational needs are, that, when not met, can cause the irrational lizard to take over our brains and actions, what should we do with that? Well, we can use it to avoid scarfing others, we can recognize when we're in danger of scarfing ourselves, and we can understand behaviors in ourselves and others that result from the inevitable scarfing that may occur. Conscious awareness of these scarf concepts allows us to help others engage more productively by consciously choosing our actions so that we're minimizing threats to others and maximizing rewards, especially internal motivators. Knowing what these triggers are that call up our lizard brains, you can make choices to activate people's reward circuitry by being sure that they have their status recognized and respected, that you're able to give them as much certainty as possible, that their autonomy is not taken away, that they feel a sense of relatedness, and that they feel exchanges with you are fair. Now be aware of environments that can trigger social threats and cause our lizard brains to emerge, like authoritarian and intimidating people who diminish our status. This is why you have to be careful with too much of that forcing or directing conflict style. If you create an environment where everyone feels like it's always your way or the highway, then this can begin to diminish their status. Be careful of unclear instructions or objectives and irrelevant tasks that fail to provide certainty around the goals or the likelihood of achieving them. When people don't understand why they're doing something or what's coming next, that certainty can be triggered. Avoid excessive structure and a lack of choice that rob people of their autonomy. And look out for a heightened power distance between participants that prevent them from developing a sense of connectedness and relatedness with others. Again, think about this internally with your teams and externally with other stakeholders. And finally, be careful not to engage in favoritism or arbitrary rules that undermine fairness. Remember, you reward people by providing for their scarf needs rather than provoking them. This will be enormously helpful in your conflict management. Now that was a lot, but to recap, we did some myth-busting around the idea that conflict is always bad, and instead recognize that conflict can be the source of creativity and energy. We explored five conflict styles and emphasized you should make the choice of which style to use based on the situation and the combined importance of being right and preserving the relationships involved. 
And finally, we explored how the brain works in conflict through this SCARF model. Conflict management is a critical part of being an adaptive leader because it's something you need to adapt to the circumstances. Knowing a little about how to read those circumstances and make better choices to fit your goal of managing the conflict can help you become a stronger adaptive leader. On behalf of the Region 4 Public Health Training Center, I want to thank you for listening. We hope this podcast will help you build your confidence and capacity to address complex challenges in your public health organization by growing and thriving as an adaptive leader. Our next episode will focus on collaborative leadership as an important part of being an adaptive leader. Until next time, reflect on what you've heard and how it fits into your leadership journey. 